Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Friday, October 20th. Pretty beautiful day, as always. It's been really nice this week. Enjoying the end of October. Birthday's coming up in, I guess, nine days. I'm going to be 29. Holy shit. Jesus. Close to 30. (laughs) But anyways, a lot I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Israel's new strategic plan that has been discussed from high-ranking Israeli politicians and authorities. I want to talk about why maybe parts of it could work, but in the end, I think, much like the United States in our war on terror, we were using kind of our traditional strategies to fight old wars, while the enemy has learned to fight the propaganda war and the literal trench tunnel warfare, because we're not fighting nations anymore. We're fighting, you know, terror groups that are entrenched inside of societies, and it's much harder to do that when you use old tactics. So I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about Biden's speech which I thought was pretty good. Didn't like all of it, but again, I'm not a cult member. I don't love everything about every leader that I follow, but I think it was good nonetheless. But first, (laughs) you guys are going to be really depressed and really saddened to hear that Jim Jordan is no longer going to try to be speaker. CNN writes here, House GOP drops Jim Jordan as the speaker nominee. The article continues, Representative Jim Jordan, the Republican from Ohio, again failed to win the speakership Friday in a third round of voting, faring worse in the latest round than he had in the previous two failed votes. Um, This is actually after the House floor vote. Um, He also lost a secret ballot at the GOP conference when they met behind closed doors. And he accepted the results. So look, I do not like Jim Jordan. I think he's horrible. But uh, (laughs) at least he accepted it and we're done. We're done with Jim. That's always nice to see. And the problem here is that, again, the party needs a path forward. I was reading that, you know, earlier I've talked about this Patrick McHenry. They were talking about maybe making him, or I guess you could say giving him more powers because he's been the temporary speaker. But it looks like that's been scrapped because I was telling my dad this last night. I think it would be a good idea at least to have someone in there. But the problem is, is that you need some Democrats to go along with this. And so Fox News, the Sean Hannity types, the far right guys in Congress are basically saying, if you do this, if you allow this, this is a win for the Democrats. Now, McHenry is quite conservative. He is no moderate. He's no rhino. But that's the narrative. So we don't want any compromise. Like talking about helping Democrats, it's a bad word. It's a very bad word. So basically, here we are again. They are pretty much going back to square one. And as more conflicts get worse around the world, and we have, what, about probably, I think, less than 30 days now until we have to face another government shutdown, we don't have a speaker. And this is getting historic, not in a good way, but the House is literally frozen, dire situation as Congress just faces a lot of different issues And I think the longer this goes on, the worse it makes the Republican Party look, the Republican House look. It also makes Matt Gaetz look like more of an a-hole. Because remember, he's the one that kind of got this going. And I guess a lot of, uh, (laughs) I guess McCarthy, (laughs) I was reading this. Again, this is behind closed doors. This is just reports. But I was reading they were in a closed meeting like two days ago. And (laughs) Kevin McCarthy told Gaetz to shut the F up. And then Gates, I guess, is like, oh, sorry, my Kevin, blah, blah, blah. And then I guess another guy's like, sit the fuck down, Kevin. I mean, uh, Matt Gates. And so they're all pretty mad at Matt Gates right now, and rightfully so. So it's, I think it's good Jim Jordan is not going to be speaker. 
Again, this is a guy who allegedly and seems accurately um, was involved in covering up this scandal at Ohio State. Awful guy. Um, bomb thrower, not good at actually whipping votes, not good at working with others. There are reports that he was having people call the wives of some of the Congress holdouts, kind of threatening them in a sense. This is a guy who I think should be investigated for his efforts on January 6th. And so it's good this guy is not going to be speaker. It'd be kind of troubling to me if pretty much the third person or the second person in line to be president is Jim Jordan. That would just tell me how broken things are. So good news there. Anyways, um, I was reading this morning, um, I, I want to kind of get into some of Israel's, I guess you could say, strategic plans going forward. And what I mean is Israel has said that it would cut ties with the Gaza Strip once Hamas is destroyed. Now, again, I have problems with that term because as we've learned over the last 20 plus years during the war on terror, it's really hard to destroy a group because unfortunately, another one just comes out of the ashes, kind of like a mal and malformed evil phoenix or something like that. But anyways, Yoav Gallant, who is Israel's defense minister, told a parliamentary committee about their three-step plan to establish, in quotes, a new security reality around the Palestinian, you know, Gaza enclave. And I guess that's been a criticize that a lot of people in the United States have had, a lot of podcasters and analysts I've listened to. They've basically said, okay, bombing the shit out of Gaza, responding to this awful terrorist attack on Israelis. That's the pretty direct, easy part. It's just a response, retaliation for what Hamas did. And I supported that. But then at the same time, it's like, what's next? What's next? Like, of course, there's emotion, there's anger, but you also have to have a plan. And so Defense Minister Gallant basically said, here are their three stages. The first stage is a military campaign of strikes and maneuvering, right? And we've seen that happening. The second step would be operations targeting any pockets of resistance inside of Gaza. So I think you could imply that that means urban warfare, which not great. And then the final stage, apparently, according to Gallant, would be ending, in quotes, any responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip. I think that means making sure Hamas doesn't come back and that there's different leadership there. I think that's what that means. I don't like the term responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip, but I think what it, what it means there is once Israel feels like there's no threat from groups like Hamas, then they don't feel like there's a responsibility to be there anymore. And once these things are done, Israel cuts ties with the Gaza Strip. Now, I'll, I'll get into the details of each one of these steps in a minute, but just off, off the top of my head, I would say this, <laughs> this new security reality Sounds like it could take years and years and years and could definitely backfire in ways. And again, this is me trying to come at a side where, as you guys know, I support Israel. I understand that they have the right to retaliate here. And I'm disgusted with kind of the propaganda that I see a lot of people just falling for and just the defense of Palestine now, solely Palestine now. I've seen on social media now, it's crazy how, you know, the days after the attacks um, on Israelis, it seems like everyone was really feeling bad for Israel. And really since that first week, I've pretty much seen mainly on social media and people I know personally just kind of just mainly only siding with Palestine. And the problem there is that, again, this is not a black and white issue. And you can feel bad for both sides at the same time. But there's just I've noticed support for Israel is really declining. And so that mixed with some of these strategies they have going forward, I don't think it's great. So this is me coming at it with love, trying to say, like, I don't particularly think this this new security reality is going to work. 
And so anyways, so the first stage, right? A military campaign of strikes and maneuvering. I've read reports that in the like week following the Hamas attack, Israel reportedly dropped like 6,000 bombs. Also, the IDF claims to have killed hundreds of terrorists, targeted weapons production sites, rocket systems, command centers. Just to be fair, though, I mean, it's really hard to get numbers. It's hard to know if all of these thousands or sorry, hundreds of terrorists have been terrorists. Have there been women and children there as well? Sources in Gaza have also reported, you know, massive collateral damage. It's hard to know how successful the military campaign of strikes has been. Just today, The Economist notes in an article in quotes here, the UN's Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, visited the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing as humanitarian aid deliveries to Gaza were held up by disagreements over inspections. The article continues, the besieged enclave was due to receive water, food, and medicine on Friday via Egypt under the American broker deal. They, the article then kind of gets into how this is important because the death toll in Gaza passed 4,000 people following another night of air raids. And I guess my concern is that this first stage of their strategic reality is, you know, strikes and maneuvering, but it doesn't seem like these attacks are just targeting Hamas and groups like Islamic Jihad. Civilians are dying. Obviously, it does look more and more like that hospital was done by Hamas or Islamic Jihad, even if it was inadvertent. But at the end of the day, propaganda spreads and Israel is, you know, bombing a lot of Gaza and that 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 is hurting civilians and I worry that it could backfire in a sense and just lead to a new generation that is hate that has a really, a really strong hatred toward Israel. And that's not going to weed out the ideology of hatred and terrorism and violence. Even if you take out Hamas or Islamic Jihad, whoever else it may be, if you're bombing cities and killing civilians and children lose parents and family members and loved ones, that's just going to create a new generation in a sense. And so that's not good either. Now, regarding the second stage, I think... <laughs> so, so the second stage was operations targeting the remaining pockets of resistance. And when I read that, my head would go to... That would... That would involve targeting and going into the tunnels under Gaza, which I've heard some call the Gaza Metro. Interesting term, but I, I read a good piece, I think it was yesterday, about the different layers of an urban warfare campaign, which, by the way, is usually long, violent, dangerous, and not always successful. But basically, it talks about the four layers being the sky above the cities. Obviously, we've seen that happening so far. Next are the buildings, and we've seen that happening so far. But then you have the streets, which I have heard called the arteries of the city. This would obviously be the really bad urban warfare part where there's actually street fighting, very dangerous, very unstable, very volatile. Um, but then the fourth layer of urban warfare, these would be the tunnels beneath the city. And I, along with every other person I've read on this, has argued that these tunnels are probably the toughest part for the IDF and could make this conflict last for a long, long, long time. The, just some background on the tunnels below Gaza. They were first, well, basically they were built to get into Israel and respond to Israeli attacks when they were outgunned, had worse technology, worse surveillance. So it was an alternative to high-tech warfare. And the tunnels were built in the 80s and have grown in size and scope since. And from my understanding... A lot of Hamas's attacks from the 90s on, and now even more so these days, originate from inside the tunnels and not from the cities because they can avoid being surveilled, they can avoid bombs and um, on-the-ground warfare. And 
for example, commanders could hide in them and communicate without, you know, Gaza's phone network, which I've read was, a, was tapped by Israel, is tapped by Israel. They also provide hiding places for weapons and ammunition. Hamas has also used them to ambush Israel during ground wars because, you know, you can pop up and come out of different areas. You're not just sitting ducks in the city. And they've also allowed cross-border raids into Israel for attacks, abductions, hostage-taking, all of that. And it's happened numerous times over the last 20 years. And The Economist has a good piece on this. It notes here in quotes, The military rationale of such tunnels were ultimately to erode Israel's way of war. It, ta it talks about a Hamas commander said in, in 2008, he was reflecting on a brief but intense war over Gaza that winter, and he said, the airstrike and air surveillance by Israel took us by surprise. So we made strategic plans to move the battle from the surface to the underground. So this is how they've responded to Israel just having superior weapons, surveillance, technology, intelligence. They've just turned it underground, which, again, I'm worried that even though the IDF has a soft plan on going into Gaza to maneuver and take out remaining you know, Hamas fighters inside of the city. This could just take a long time, and I don't know if they're really prepared for how long that could be. Because in practice, you have to, uh, you know, identify, clear, and collapse like hundreds. I've, I've read it's like several hundreds of miles, kilometers of underground tunnels. And that's not going to take weeks or months. That's going to take years and years and years. And I don't know if the Israeli people would be totally ready for that down the road. And I don't know if Countries like the United States would support that either. Maybe we would, but maybe we wouldn't. Finally, their third final stage in this operation is ending any responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip. Another confusing one to me. I'm not completely sure what this would entail, but I think it, it does mean basically making it so they're not worried about needing to control Gaza anymore, which is a controversial thing all on its own. But We won't get into that right now, but... Basically, they want to make sure Hamas doesn't come back, I think. And basically, the most obvious one, which I don't think would be good, would be a prolonged occupation of Gaza, which is unpalatable at best, in my opinion, and probably to a lot of the world. It also would just be really costly. I can't even imagine how costly a long-term occupation could be. And also, again, I think this would just breed a new generation of Palestinians that despise Israel. And I think it could backfire and it would take a really long time. And Biden, in a speech like in his speech like what three or four days ago when he was in Israel, he warned Israel that a long occupation would likely be a big mistake, and you could see probably Israel losing international support on that one. Of course, probably the worst option would be a very violent war to completely annihilate Hamas. I've kind of talked about this one already. I'm not even sure how feasible that would actually be. I think it would be the worst way because again, loss of life, destruction and hatred towards the invading army, which would be the IDF, even if they're retaliating against what Hamas did. It would lead to, I think, a propaganda war, a lot of disinformation, and I think it would be very divisive in the world between like Arab countries, non-Arab countries. It would, it, it would be a mess. And I mean, probably the best solution would be trying to work with an organization like the Palestinian Authority, trying to bring some semblance of different leadership to Gaza. The Economist has a good piece um, on some of these solutions. By the way, I, th these are not all the same article I've been referencing. I, I read like 10 different articles in The Economist um, to do some of the sourcing here. Um, but, but this piece is about 
probably an unlikely idea, but the one that would be the most peaceful if it could work. Again, not likely it would work, but the article's out two days ago, and it argues that bringing the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza would be the best option. The article writes here in quotes, the best outcome from Israel's perspective, and again, this is from Israel's perspective, so we have to remember that, but it, it, it writes, sorry, um, would be the return of the Palestinian Authority, the PA, which governs parts of the West Bank in coordination with Israel. Now, I mean, I should also note that <laughs> this would also probably not be popular in Gaza right now because the PA, it's it's independent from Israel, but it's also been bolstered by Israel, and that would be a lot. There'd be a lot of issues just with that alone. There's a guy, Ghassan Al Khatib. Um, he is actually a Palestinian, a former Palestinian prime minister, and he says that Mahmoud Abbas, who is the current leader of the Palestinian Authority it would be very tough for a boss to return to Gaza, especially riding on an Israeli tank. I'm not saying specifically an Israeli tank, but basically propped up by the Israelis to come and lead in Gaza. Not great. The guy's also about 90, has no power, and I was reading like 80% of Palestinians want a boss to resign. The PA is a one-party state or organization. There's, there haven't really been elections. They've also kind of ruled the West Bank with an iron fist, without elections as well. So this is not perfect. I guess to be fair, though, the West Bank is somewhat safer than Gaza. The Palestinian Authority is not as radical. Um, but but also the Palestinian Authority has lost legitimacy, I guess you could say in a sense, is that because the PA, from my understanding, was actually in Gaza before 2006. That's when they had that election in 2006. By the way, the last election in Gaza was in 2006. And Hamas won that election, and the PA was kind of ousted from the area. And so the PA removed, you know, individuals and professionals from all parts of the bureaucracy there. Hamas took it over. And so the argument, too, would be that PA leaders don't might not really want to go back to Gaza. They don't find it very appealing. They don't find it safe. So actually just getting a party that's not really a violent group right now to go there would actually be kind of difficult. And I think that's the conundrum it's in, because... Again, at the end of the day, probably best outcome is to find some sort of, it can still be a pretty fundamentalist Arabic, you know, organization in Gaza, but you need to have at least some semblance of elections and society that works, not just, you know, an Islamic terrorist regime. But again, that's a long way down the road. And I think with all the fighting right now, that becomes less and less likely. You know, at the end of the day, I always say, I think the best solution is a one-state solution, one giant state where you have Israelis and Palestinians living in a pluralist society, much like a lot of Western Europe where you have elections, you have different religious groups there. But again, I think that gets more and more complicated and unlikely as the days, months, years go on. I've never been a fan of the two-state solution just because that would then have basically two religious countries, two basically ethno states right next to each other. You would have like a Palestinian Muslim country right next to an Israeli, mainly Jewish country. I don't, I, I think you need one state that's pluralistic and you have people trying to live amongst each other. Again, that's, that's very idealistic, very unlikely at this time, but that's where I would stand on this. But anyways, this, this segment's not meant to solve any problems today, but Israel does have this new security plan three steps, very vague steps, very difficult steps. Three steps, when you read them, it seems simple. 
But as you guys have noticed in this segment here, I've, when I break down each step, this sounds like years down the road. And that's going to take some preparation for the people. And I, I just worry that that makes this conflict worse on both sides. And, and again, I don't want to see people dying. So it gets really difficult here. But anyways, we're not going to solve this. <laughs> um, I will also just note that I truly think Israel needs to be careful here. A collective response to a violent attack can work well when the group attacking is another sovereign country, such as, you know, what we saw in the world wars from the past, or even Russia invading Ukraine right now. It's more black and white. Nothing's ever totally black and white, but this is because you directly can put the accountability on the nation that invaded or initiated the attack. But unfortunately, the war on terror that we conducted and now the war against Hamas that Israel is waging, both have shown us that terrorists are non-state actors, and we can't respond in the same way that we would to a traditional two-sided conflict. And as I said at the beginning of this, we are still using traditional strategies to fight old wars, and the enemy has learned to fight different wars to respond to that. Propaganda wars, trench wars, tunnel wars, like what Hamas is doing. And so these things are more difficult, and I think Israel needs to be careful. Moving on, so I had trivia last night, so admittedly, I did not watch Biden's State of the Union. Also, sometimes uh, I like what Biden has to say, and I think he usually has a good moral compass, especially in foreign policy, but <laughs> sometimes I can't stand watching or hearing him. It's just uncomfortable, and his age shows, and he's never been the best speaker, and things have gotten worse over time, so... Today I, and last night, I just watched some segments and then read parts of the transcript and then just read some commentary on it. And that was enough for me. Uh, yeah, that's usually how I go with the Biden ones and most presidents anyways. So anyways, if you like Biden, you probably thought this was a pretty defining State of the Union and an important one for him. That, that was kind of my takeaway from it, especially at a time where the GOP has become very isolationist and the RFK Jr. far left as well, you know, where they disparage NATO, they're critical of aid to Ukraine, even people like Tucker Carlson are downplaying what happened in Israel, the Hamas attack in Israel. Um, you know, Donald Trump has praised Putin, among other dictators. Um, it, just, it, it just seems like where the right is completely detached from the Reagan era, moral majority, you know, shiny beacon on a hill, lead by example, all that stuff. That's gone. So I think it was important for Biden to really come out and try to define how we need to unify democracies against this growing authoritarianism, this outcast group of dict dictatorial countries and just rising violence. And so if you like Biden, you probably thought this was a good speech. If you don't like Biden, you probably took issues with the speech. And if you're on the MAGA right, you probably thought he looked like a corpse and you probably disagreed with everything he said in it. And eh, that's all fine. We have differences of opinion. But I personally did think the speech will define him, and I agree with most of it. Um, the significance of his Oval Office address, I think, was signaled probably in the opening sentence when he said we're facing an inflection point in history. And he's very right. As I've talked about, pretty much one of the main themes of this podcast is, you know, we're seeing the growth of an axis of authoritarian outcasts, you know, ranging from Russia to China to Turkey to Iran, right, to... To India, in some senses, Brazil, I could go on all day, right? But Viktor Orban in Hungary, just to name another one. And 
as we're seeing this, you know, kind of democratic decline, a liberal democracy is growing up. We've also seen a growth in regional conflicts, a growth in civil wars. I have a podcast from a few months ago about that. Um, violence indexes show an actual rise in violence and instability around the world, which is depressing because we've seen decades of decline, but things are changing. The world's less safe. There's more political assassinations. That, that happened with that row recently where between India and Canada that's still going on. And democracy just is being threatened. Liberal elections are being threatened. Even internally, electoral systems are being threatened by demagogues. And so I think, I think people that don't like Biden or are critical of foreign aid will see this speech as just him trying to give his case that we need to put more money towards Ukraine and now Israel. But it's more complicated than that. And that's such a basic, basic take is that, oh, he's just asking for more money. And I think the speech was less about the price tag and more about how we must try to defend the democratic order, the American system in a lot of ways, and what's been declining around the world. And I think Biden's always had a great moral compass for this. And he actually, I'm just glad Trump is not president with all these things going on right now. Some people will say, oh, this would have never happened if Trump was president. <laughs> yeah, maybe Trump would have just let Putin walk into Ukraine and take it. Anyways, I should add that, of course, this speech was about money, too. Of course it was. Biden's main cause was to urge Americans to stand with Israel in the war against Hamas and Ukraine in the war against Russia. He's going to ask, I think, in the next week for emergency assistance from Congress for the two nations. He wants about $100 billion in spending towards both the war in, happening between Israel and Hamas and the war in Ukraine. Of course, the Congress is obviously not too effective right now. But anyways, that's a whole other story that I've talked about. But Peter Weiner in The Atlantic notes, though, in quotes here, the speech was not primarily about money. It was about America's the uh, yeah, theology, about how Biden sees the role of the United States in the world that is fraying and aflame. And I agree with that. And there's parts of the speech where Biden really gets some buzzwords out there. You know, he talks about how America is the arsenal of democracy, which was a FDR phrase from like the late 30s, early 40s. He talks about how America is the essential nation, the indispensable nation. It holds the world together. <coughs> Excuse me. I think a good part of his speech also was trying to draw parallels between Israel and Ukraine. Even though obviously they're thousands of miles away, the conflicts are different. Obviously, you know, Ukraine's battling a world power. Like I said earlier in the show, it's a little bit more black and white. Israel's obviously battling Hamas, a terrorist organization. It's a regional conflict, a lot of bad blood and history tied in there, much more complicated. But I think Biden did a good job of kind of linking the two conflicts, talking about how the outcome is important for America's security, the world's security, and just holding bad people accountable. I want to read a line from his address. He said in quotes here, History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. And I always get it. My head always just hurts when I talk to some people who think that the world can be safe and we also don't have to help Ukraine stop Putin. And we also don't have to hold Putin you know, accountable for the war crimes he's committing. I, I, I just think it's, it's very naive to think that violence and a lack of accountability and authoritarianism and expansionist violence and neo-militarism and nationalism are just going to stay in one place. They're not. We're such a globalized world that we have to hold 
bad guys accountable, especially when it's to our friends and allies and other democracies. And I just think a lot of the isolationists, especially now on the MAGA right and the RFK, whatever he is now, just seem to think that it's not important and we can help our own and have a stable society without holding the bad guys accountable. And I just think that's naive. I can rant about that all day, and I have, as I'm sure you guys are aware. But I think David Sanger of the New York Times, I think, said it best. He, he said in quotes here, Biden displayed a passion, emotion, and a clarity that is usually missing from the president's ordinary flat and meandering speeches. And, you know, I, like I say again, I don't agree with everything Biden does. I'm worried about him running again. But when it's come to Ukraine and Israel and his moral clarity on it, it's, it's impressive. And I thought this speech was good. And I think we just need to, uh, I think we need to always realize that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I know I've said this before. Literally, we could cut our military budget and still give the amount we're giving to Ukraine without it really hurting us. Like it's, I think it's like 0.05 or it's like 0.02 to 0.0, no, no, not 0.02. Sorry. It's two to 5% of our defense budget is going to Ukraine right now. It's not huge. It's not significant. The reason why we don't get good things like better health care or better education costs and everything's expensive is not because we're sending money to Ukraine or sending help to Israel. It is because our politicians are so divided and they're ideologically divided that they are entrenched in their positions and never get anything passed. It has nothing to do with sending aid to Ukraine. And I, I, I just have never seen numbers that say, oh, the money that we're sending to Ukraine could be used in a better way. We're never going to get like a... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez agreeing with Matt Gates on Medicare for all. That's the problem, not giving money to Ukraine. And okay, so it's been depressing topics as always today. So I want to end on a lighter note. As I, 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 I want to talk about this since two days ago when I first read about it, but we have a new world's hottest chili. We have a world's hottest pepper, according to the Guinness World Records. And as you guys are probably aware, and if you're not, now you are, I'm a big pepper guy. I like spice. I like hot. Most things I cook with involve pepper. And basically, until like last week, the previous hottest pepper was the Carolina Reaper, which I, I, I have when it's in a chili or a salsa. I would never eat it by itself because it would just destroy my stomach. Um, but Pepper X, <laughs> what an appealing name, right? Pepper X. It was now named the world's hottest chili. Now, the interesting thing here is it sounds like this thing was kind of engineered. <laughs> You're not going to find this thing in the wild of like Central America because it was grown by this guy, Ed Curry. <laughs> I like how the hottest peppers made by a guy named Ed Curry. But anyways, he's a farmer in South Carolina, and he also made the Carolina Reaper. Yeah, and he now made this. And to put this into perspective, Pepper X rates at nearly 2.7 million on the Scoville heat units, a jalapeno is a jalapeno can range from 3,000 to 8,000. So this thing is just insanely hot, and it even just just looks down on uh, the Carolina Reaper. And last night I was <laughs> I was reading rankings of different peppers from like the light like from a bell pepper to Pepper X, and I mean I like that orange dark orange to red area, but this thing. This thing makes a habanero seem like it's just a bell pepper at this point. Now, the funny thing is I was reading that Mr. Curry tried this pepper X and he said he was in severe pain with cramps for an hour after eating a whole one. I, um, I'm going to stick with my habaneros, ghost pepper chilies, 
sometimes a good scorpion pepper. I'm going to stick with those. Probably not going to get into the pepper X thing. But yeah, whenever you have severe stomach pain for hours after eating one, probably not not in the cards for me. But anyways, I just find it interesting because I, I feel like you can find a certain amount of hot peppers in the wild. But when you get to these extremely hot ones, like almost to 3 million on the Scoville ranking system, these things are not natural. <laughs> and And again, like... It's, it's insane where the ghost pepper a decade ago was the hottest pepper in the world, according to the Guinness World Records. And now it, it, it just just collapses in comparison compared to some of these. So let me know your thoughts. Do you guys like peppers? Uh, are you going to be trying this uh, Pepper X? I don't even know if it's available yet. I didn't, didn't do a whole lot of research on this. I just wanted to give an update on it. But yeah, I'll stick with my habaneros and ghost peppers and stuff. So anyways... Might be back later with another short episode, but enjoy your Friday. Beautiful out. Uh, almost the weekend. Halloween around the corner. Starting to see Christmas lights out already, which is troubling, but that's a whole other story. Take care.